Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes to Go podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada. Learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Joshua Becker. Who is that? I'm so glad you asked. Joshua Becker is the author of Things That Matter, Overcoming Distractions to Pursue a More Meaningful Life, and the best-selling author of The More of Less, The Minimalist Home, and the founder of Becoming Minimalist, a website dedicated to inspiring others to find more life by owning less. The website welcomes over 1.5 million readers every month and has inspired millions around the world to consider the practical benefits of owning fewer possessions. We actually talk about that a little, about how many items of clothing he owns. I really am curious um, when I run into minimalists. I think it's fascinating. He's also the creator of Simplify Magazine and founder of The Hope Effect, a nonprofit organization changing how the world cares for orphans. Joshua and his family live near Phoenix, Arizona, and we've known each other kind of Twitter-wise for the last 10 years or so. Like we've been at the same events. We've kind of circled each other in social media. So it was really fun to actually get to connect and have a good conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is me. I've been really surprised at how many people who listen to this podcast have reached out to me about having me speak at their events. I love that. And here's why. Over the last 13 years, I've had the honor to help hundreds of companies like Nissan, Walmart, Microsoft, and Comedy Central at events around the world. And during that time, I've developed three big goals for your event. Number one, I want to slingshot your audience into the best year they've ever had. Whether I'm opening, closing, or somewhere in the middle of the event, I want to launch everyone out of that room with actionable, memorable things that they can apply to their work and lives immediately. Number two, my second goal, I want the sound team engaged and laughing. The sound team has heard it all. They have. And if I can make them laugh and learn along the way, the audience is going to absolutely love the keynote. And number three, my third goal, I want you to get text messages during the keynote. My favorite sentence to hear from you after I speak is, John, my phone was blowing up during your keynote. I'm there to make you look like a rock star, not me. If your boss text you during my speech and compliments you on how well the event is going, then I know I've done my job. Whether it's virtual or live, 10,000 people in an arena or 15 sales team members on WebEx or Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, I'd love to help you with your next event. Fill out the quick form at acuff.me slash speaking to check my availability. That's acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot M-E slash speaking. All right, let's jump into my interview with Joshua Becker. All right, Joshua, this is super fun for me because as I said before we um, started talking, we've known each other-ish like via Twitter and social media and, and two dudes that came up at the same time in the wild, wild west of side hustles. So I'm so glad that I finally get to talk with you and interact with you. So thank you for doing this. Uh, it is my pleasure. You host an amazing podcast. John, I've been reading your writing for 15 or 16 years, I would say. Back even before I started blogging, I was... That's crazy. Stuff. That is super fun. And I, I want to jump in with a writing question. You've written a number of books. Um, what's your favorite part of writing a book? What's mm. your least favorite? Oh, John, I hate writing books. 
Can yeah. I, I mean, can I come out and say that? Or yeah, yeah. Am, yeah. I, am I supposed to be hiding? No, it's supposed to be people? magical. You're in a field and you have a falcon on your arm. I thought it was all gorgeous art. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself first. John, I love writing blog posts. Mm-hmm. I love 800 to 1200 word articles where I have a thought. I have one thought I want to get across. I can think mm-hmm. of the intro to get there and how I want to communicate it. And then the closing sentence comes and wraps it all up. And I get to feel amazing for the rest of the day that, that I wrote something. Uh, books are incredibly different. Uh, they, they take a lot more uh, puzzle piece putting together, a lot more of, as my editor once said, how are you going to keep the reader leaning forward in your book? And I said, I have no idea what that means, much less how to do it. Uh, but as soon as he explained it, I'm like, you're right. Good books. I do. I can't wait to get to the next chapter. So how do I, how do, I do that? So I am, I'm terrible at that. What do I love about writing? I mean, I, uh, I've only written books that I was passionate about writing, uh, that I had something that I wanted to get out into the world. And I wanted it to be in a nice organized way that would be the most helpful to the most number of people. So every book I've written, I was passionate about getting something out. Um, the, the actual process of doing it was uh, much more difficult. And I usually gain about 20, 25 pounds. John, I gain weight every time I write a book. That's true. What do you gain weight on? Like, what's your thing where you're like, I'm eating bear claws the whole time I'm writing. I got to have a stack of bear claws by uh, me. Like- I, it's probably stress, uh, late nights, because I'm terrible at hitting a deadline um, yeah. and just eating whatever I can to uh, keep munching on something that uh, distracts me. But are you like a, you, you're an ice cream guy or like, for me, it's like, I, mm. I joke about queso and it's too much. Like mm-hmm. we've gone to the well too, too often. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is my thing. I have no portion control when it comes to melted cheese. Like I understand portions of other items, but like for me, that bowl, I don't understand. What you, are you savory? Are you sweet? You're like, I, I eat a whole wedding cake. Yeah. No, salty, savory, salty. Yeah. And uh, fudge stripe cookies. I really. There you go. Those are the two. El. All right. All right. So speaking of writing, your your website. You mentioned your blog. It's had over sixty million readers, which is bonkers to me. Like that's states amount of people. Like that's Nashville times seventy two or whatever our population is. Was there a single moment where you kind of caught it and went, "Whoa, this thing is moving in a way that I didn't expect it to"? Like. I think we all fantasize there's a viral moment where like Kim Kardashian is like, I love Joshua. And then all of a sudden, like everyone who loves her now loves you. Or was it a slow, you built it brick by brick by brick. And you're looking back years later going, oh yeah, I can see some peak moments, but they weren't viral that way. Yeah. Uh, The second it was, uh, it was slow. People ask me, how do I, how do I become a successful blogger? And I'm like, man, just show up every single day for 13 years. And uh, they hate that answer, dude. They hate that answer. I'm I'm sure, I'm sure there are easier ways to do it than Mm. I did. And um, there are probably some tips and some tricks that I could have focused on earlier and learned earlier. I didn't want to be a full-time writer. Uh, I, I loved my job before doing what I was doing. And so how does this become my full-time income was uh, never what the, what the dream or what the passion was. And so little things I learned along the way, just being out there in the world and writing and uh, being engaged and wanting it, wanting it to reach people. And so you, you stumble across something and you stumble across something. There was um, a moment, it wasn't a, a viral moment, but 
Uh, I was at an amusement park. I came home late that night and happened to check the blog stats for the day. And they were, uh, I don't know, 50 times higher what they normally were, like something had happened. And an internet writer that I looked up to, Leo Babauta at Zen Habits, had linked to my website on his blog. Man, It was the first time ever that I think that someone who I had been watching had noticed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was... I don't know. It wasn't a viral moment because blog traffic lasts for one day and then you're yeah. you're back to where you were or a little bit higher the next day. Yeah. But that was a moment where I'm like, hey, people are uh, people are noticing this. I, I love that you got to have that moment. That must have been super fun. You talk a little about that process of transitioning in your new book, Things That Matter. And I thought that one of the most honest, vulnerable stories in the book to me um, was at the dinner table with your wife and kids, you're kind of in that space of like, are we doing this thing? Are we not doing this thing? And it was really personal. And one of those moments that as a dad, you're like, oh man, I, I, I wish it hadn't unfolded that way. Can you explain that season and that specific moment for us? Sure. So my transition out of my full-time job into writing was, was about a three and a half year process. As I said, there are quicker ways to do this, I'm sure. But it was it was a year and a half of me deciding that, hey, maybe I, I should be, I, I could be more helpful to the world in, in this writing career. And then two years of, okay, how is this going to happen? How are we going to make this work? And again, I, I, I don't know how to say this other than I was never in it for, for money. Like I, I never, like if I just want to make money writing online, I would do a lot of things differently than the way I do them now. But I didn't want to cross that line of, I didn't want to say, okay, now this is supporting my family. So I'm going to cross all these lines that in principle, I didn't want to cross before. Even something simple, I don't have any advertising on my website and never have and didn't want to, but I could like overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was always a lot of worry and concern about where the where the money was going to come from. Um, I, I do all the details in the book, so I don't mind sharing it here. I, I was making about two thousand dollars a month online. Um, we figured that we needed forty. Uh, we need four thousand a month to live, mm-hmm. and we had saved up eighteen thousand. So I knew that. I had nine months, right? I, I was making 2000 less than I needed per month over nine months would run through all the savings. And there was a lot of fear. Anyway, you asked about the specific story. No, but I love the runway because I, I, I think runway is a great thing where yeah. I think our culture teaches just jump off a cliff and you'll grow wings on the way down. And you're like, that, that's not how biology especially, works at all. Especially in the internet world, right? I mean, yeah. just so much of, I, I just saw an ad, I just saw an ad pop up yesterday and it was like within five minutes you can make hundred thousand dollars a year on youtube five minutes a day i'm like i kind of want to click this just to find out what yeah but you know it's not like aiming you can do that yeah but, the people i know that say you can do something and only work one hour a day or whatever are the hardest working people i know yeah. like and they're redefining work so you go what about those other 17 hours of activity? I don't count that as work. The yeah, only yeah. work I do is Facebook ads. And you're like, yeah. but you also, you don't sleep at all. Like this <laughs> seems very stressful. It's yeah. one hour. So yeah. I, I cut you off, but I love that you had runway. I love that you were thinking about that because I think it's it's practical. I, that's what I love about your story. So you're in that moment, you've done the math, you've got nine months to kind of 
get this thing going. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm probably a month or two away from my cutoff date at my job and uh, going to become the, the writer. And we're at, we're at a dinner table and I made the comment to the table. I thought it was funny. I thought it was clever. They were complaining about going, my kids were elementary school and uh, were commenting about the school lunch. And I said, well, I hope you don't mind the school lunch because if this blogging thing doesn't work for me, you're probably going to have to bring home food for us to eat for dinner. I thought it was cute and clever, but uh, literally my uh, daughter broke out in tears and my son left the table to go to his bedroom. And I think I realized how, number one, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, but, but number two, I, I, this, I don't know, probably my fear um, was, was probably, you know, laying it out for my kids a little more than, than I should have. Not that I don't want to be honest with them about what I was doing. And I want to see, want them to see me taking a risk, but they weren't in a place to be handling the stress that I was feeling in that moment. Well, and, and for me, I would say most of the things I've had to apologize for involve the phrase, I thought it would be funny. Mm, yeah. like, like a lot of my thing, like I have to come back and go, Hey, here's the thing I thought, but it just felt like a really honest moment about you and your wife trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? You've done it. You've made the transition that a lot of people want to make or think they want to make from thing I care about, passion I have, to it's now my full-time career. What do you think are some of the, the pitfalls or mistakes that you see people who are trying to do the same thing make? Gosh, uh, a lot. I, I can tell you the one that I, I tell people the most, uh, and that is this that you should enjoy the season where your hobby is not your full-time income. I loved writing when there was no pressure to make any money from it, when it wasn't supporting my family, when it was just, this is something that I love to do uh, and, and it's mm -hmm. just my hobby. There's no pressure. I can fail, I can screw up and my paycheck is still gonna show up. And uh, I think we, I don't know, we, we kind of wish that away a lot. Um, and we want it so much to, to be the, the full-time thing that we miss that. But when I made the transition into full-time writing, um, John, this is phrasing that my wife hates, but I felt like I married my mistress uh, is how I, mm -hmm. how I explained it, where I had my full-time job and writing was my hobby and it was my distraction from my full-time job. Mm -hmm. And it was the thing that I did to relax and, and rest and fire me up. Uh, and suddenly it became the thing that I had to do every single day. And, and trying to find that next hobby took a long time. Um, I don't even know if I found it quite yet, but, um, but it's, uh, it's different when it goes from being the hobby to the, the full-time responsibility. A hundred percent. That's, that's such a good answer. And it's something that I've definitely experienced in my own life. Because if you told me when I started to write, hey, this will turn into this, this, and this, the pressure would overwhelm me. Like if you said, this is going to be a two book deal 12 years from now, I would have like every word I would have been like, is that a smart enough word? Is that a good enough word? Is that a, and so I, I always call that like the gift of invisibility that mm -hmm. you were able to make a lot of your mistakes and try a lot of your things too, without a world noticing and without pressure noticing your blog um, focuses on minimalism. What's the part of your personal minimalist approach to life that surprises people? Like what's when you say you're at a dinner party 
and you say, I own three socks, like not even two pairs because the fourth one is wasteful. Like what's the thing? Or like, I don't own any books. I own four books and three of them are the Bible. Like what's the thing that when people bump into your personal approach to minimalism are surprised by or go, I I guess the flip is, oh, I could never do that. Like when you say, yeah, I just don't, I don't keep a lot of blank or I don't make space for, or I don't care about blank or like I don't watch TV. Like what's the thing that's personal to you that people are surprised by? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because the way you phrased it first, the thing that would be the most surprising to someone who didn't know me was that I just wear the same thing every day that I wear a black, black v-neck, t-shirt, black, black V-neck t-shirt. And where do you get your t-shirts? I'm just curious. Cause I do the same thing. <laughs> I, uh, I get them from J crew. Although I think they, they just changed where they manufacture their shirts. And so I got new ones and they don't fit me quite right. And so ah, I don't know, that don't is know no what good. I'm going to do. Actually, that, I, a, year, a couple of years ago, they ch- changed. And so I got a couple. And I'm like, these don't fit me quite so well. It's so funny that you can get so used to a, a, a company and a product that when they switch from Indonesia to Guatemala, you can notice it on the tag and you're like, <laughs> yeah. a minute. Yeah, this Nothing is changed different. here. So it would be clothes that I, I'm I'm pretty content and enjoy yeah. just wearing the the same thing every single day. Of course, people who know me know that because they see me every single day. So it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't surprise them. But uh, yeah, generally um, about 30, uh, 30, uh, 35 articles of clothing in my in my closet and mm-hmm. um, black t shirts and a couple white ones and uh, some matching pants. I can pick and choose anything I want on any given day. What does the average person our age have? Because I'm assuming you're close to my age. Like, are we talking like 150 is average? And at 35, it's it feels low to me because I think I have like 30 t-shirts. Yeah. Seven of them are queso related because again, I tweet about it and then people are like, you need to have the in queso emergency, eat cheese. Yeah, out. funny. Um, yeah, I have a lot of those. <laughs> Let's do more of them. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think I um, I quoted this stat several years ago. That I think the average American woman has 39 outfits in their closet. 50 years ago, the average American woman had nine. But people hate that I single out women. But that's the only yeah. stat that, I, uh, that I've seen. So That's funny. So it's, it's uh, shirts for you. How did you first get into minimalism as a, as a way of life? Um, or is it, or is kind of a framework for how you look at life? Uh, Thirteen years ago, my neighbor, uh, my neighbor introduced me to it. Uh, my son was five, my daughter was two, and I was cleaning out my garage on a Saturday morning uh, while my son played alone in the backyard. And just uh, one thing led to another. It's just going to be a simple spring cleaning garage day. I thought my five-year-old son would love the project, and he lasted about twenty seconds, and he was in. The- <laughs> You want me to come play catch? And I just, I, I just kept pushing him off. I can't, I can't, I need to, I need to do this garage. I need to finish this project. This is what we do, right? Um, trying to be responsible and taking care of the stuff in my garage. So it was my neighbor, uh, June, who introduced me to minimalism when I started complaining a little bit about the project to her. And she said, well, you know, that's why my daughter is a minimalist. She keeps telling me I don't need to own all this stuff. I remember looking at my driveway, there's this pile of dirty, dusty things that I I would have said, like everyone, that my possessions weren't making me happy. I'm not looking for happiness in my possessions. We all say it. I'm not looking for money to make me happy. Like we all say it out loud. But out of the corner of my eye, there was my five-year-old son swinging alone on the swing set in the backyard where he'd been all day long by himself and suddenly realized that all the things I owned 
weren't just not making me happy, but all the things I owned were actually taking me away from the very thing that did bring me happiness and meaning mm-hmm. and purpose and significance. So that was, um, that was the, that was the day. That was the moment, like a light bulb, a 30 second conversation changed my life. That's crazy. And I think that's the power of books too, in that it can be a 30 second conversation. It can be a line in a book where things flip. I loved how you wrote about a quote from Seneca that life is long if you know how to use it. Because I think all too often we go, life's too short, life's too short, life's too short. But life is long if you know how to use it. How do you use the hours in your day right now? Are you a, I'm a morning guy, this is where I try to write, and then in the afternoon, I've got my kids. Or like, give us kind of a rough sketch of how you spend your week. My kids are in school all day, so uh, I I tend to work um, most of the day. Uh, they're driving now. So usually my day was my son, my daughter just got her driver's license. So it used to be, I mean, if I were to go minute by minute, wake up at 610, uh, I go to the gym. What are you doing at the gym? Are you like, I'm in CrossFit, I'm doing Pilates, like I'm a pure bar, orange theory guy. Like what is, what are you doing at the gym? Pure bar, arms theory. Arms theory. Mean. That's what you're doing? Just pure arms? I don't do any legs. I have a program called Arms whatever, Theory. Whatever it's, looks good. Whatever yeah. looks good in a black t-shirt. Got to fill out a t-shirt from I Jake Crew. pants, so the legs, leg legs, yeah. leg days don't matter. Uh, resistance training, mostly weight training mm-hmm. uh, is mm-hmm. what I like to do. Uh, I use an app, an app called FitBod, which I, which I really like. Uh, puts together different workouts for me. So that's what I do. And um, yeah, I've always kind of, always kind of liked that. Uh, about an hour and then breakfast. And then I, uh, I, I do my best writing in the morning or uh, late evening. Actually, let me rephrase that. I do my best writing when I have a deadline uh, right around the corner. That's, that's when I do my best writing. You know what it does, John? This isn't even what you're talking about, but um, I've discovered a deadline forces thoughts out of my head. I can just ruminate and I can think and I want to gather information and thoughts but like when okay i need to have something written by the end of the day that's when i'm like okay it's time to stop reading and thinking and to actually yeah. put some some words on some paper but anyway so um yeah i tend to tend to work until uh 3:45 or 4 um at least that's when i was uh, picking up my daughter um from track practice on the way home and uh, then I'm home for the evening, typically. At least have been for the last two and a half years. Uh, home yeah, right. Not a not a whole lot of travel uh, mm-hmm. last two and a half years. I'm always curious about how how people frame their days because I know for me the first half is the best writing time for me. The second half is like if I can spend the first half creating ideas and the second half getting them out to the world. Like I've got to, that's the two things I can do. Like, yeah, that's what I'm capable of. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm best writing thought work in the morning uh, and then busy work in the in the afternoon is um, yeah. And I I like that the book helps you kind of think through that. I think one of the my favorite parts of the book is that you did this massive study um, to really dig into this conversation, how people think, what they care about. Tell me about where the study started and what were some of the things that taught you out of the study. John, I did a nationwide survey. I just like saying that I did a, I conducted a nationwide yeah. survey. I think if that, you had added Canada, you could have said international, but we'll get to Canada next book. Let's, I think that you know. makes me sound pretty impressive. Yeah. I forget the genesis of where the idea came from, but um, as soon as someone mentioned it about uh, doing a survey for the book, I'm like, that would be really great because I know my thoughts mm-hmm. on these issues. I know where I struggle, but it would be interesting to know uh, if other people have the same struggles or how they define uh, what some of those struggles are. So the book is all about 
what distractions keep us from from living a, a meaningful mm-hmm. life. And so I wanted some guarantee or some data that proved that the distractions that I was struggling with were were similar to others, but also it really ended up shaping shaping the book, where we put different mm-hmm. chapters in the book, um, some of the things that we discussed and some of the topics that, that I went into. I can tell you, um, I don't want to take you off track of what we were talking about. No, no, no. We can talk about whatever. I can, uh, I can tell you the, the most heartbreaking, I would say it's the most heartbreaking um, statistic. Well, the one that surprised me the most was that 70% of people say they know what their purpose is in life. That was higher than I thought it was going to be. I read that and I was like, I don't believe that. I believe they wanted to answer that way. Like based on the humans I interact with, like seven out of my 10 neighbors know exactly what their per get out of here. I saw uh, that too. That surprised me. I, I, I don't always know if, if what they think their highest purpose is, is what their actual highest purpose is. But uh, regardless, yeah, 70%, which surprised me because... And it occurs to me, like the emails I get are, hey, how do I define my purpose? How do I find my purpose? Yeah. But no one's emailing me to tell me, hey, I know what my purpose is in life. It's only people who, yeah. who, are, who don't know who are like, hey, how do I find this? Or yeah. what would it be? So um, anyway, so anyway, that surprised me as much as it surprised you. The heartbreaking one, 60% of people say that they are held back from the future they want because of past mistakes that they mm-hmm. made in their life. And maybe even more heartbreaking, 55% of people say that they are, 56% say that they're held back from the future they want because of a wrong committed against them, uh, a mistake committed against mm-hmm. them in the past. And I, I literally remember getting the survey results back and, and flipping through it. I, I was in my office and I came across that question and like emotional, like it, mm-hmm. it was sad that 60% of people could, like 60% of people could say it. Like there's probably even more people that wouldn't admit it or, or couldn't point it out that is uh, keeping them from the life that they want to be living. Uh, that is, that's a lot of potential. Yeah. And I, I liked how you were tactical about dealing with um, regret, especially around the idea about the thing, the mistake, the regret, the challenge, the, the thing you did could end up being why you're qualified for a good work. So can you talk a little about that reframe? Yeah, and I, I, I even make the phrase in the book, which I, I think is helpful. Um, not every mistake becomes a mission. Um, you know, not, not every yeah. problem has to become a passion. Yeah, that's good. That's a great phrase. Can you say that again? Not every mistake needs to become a mission mm-hmm. um, and not every problem needs to become uh, a passion. So good. On a global scale, like I'm pretty convinced that a lot of the division that we have in the world today is because mm-hmm. people are passionate about different problems. Um, and I'm passionate about a problem. And if you're not as passionate about the same problem that I'm passionate about, then there's something wrong with you. Or you're you part know, of the problem. Or you're part of the problem. You are the problem. Yeah. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to, hey, there's a lot of problems in the world, you know, and I, yeah. I think it's great. I think it's God given that people would be passionate about wanting mm-hmm. to solve different problems that they see, um, that we see in the world. But you know, I mean, um, I don't know what her reputation is in the world anymore, but uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, when I was in college, mm-hmm. someone called in. I don't know why. I've always loved talk radio and call-in shows of every of every sort. Mm-hmm. And someone called in um, about something that happened in her past, and she couldn't get over it. And I remember the phrase Dr. Laura said to her. She said, look, you can never change the past but you can redeem the past by learning from it. Mm. You can't change it, but 
it can become your servant when you learn from that mistake and use it to become a better person. If it was something that you did, you learn, why did I do that? Why did that happen? How do I keep from repeating it? Or what can I learn from it to make myself better? If it was something that someone did to you, what, what can I learn about people? What can I learn about the, the world? How can this um, become, I don't know, an asset is a tough word, I think. Yeah. With, uh, some of the things that the people have had to go through, maybe it's not the wrong word when we learn from it and uh, become better because of it. Yeah, I, I just thought that was, there's several reframes in the book that I underlined. That was one of them. Another one was, you wrote, your most important work will never be the easiest. In fact, it'll probably be one of the hardest things you ever do. And I thought that was a great countercultural reframe almost because there is this sense of when you find your true thing, that'll be the thing that feels the most natural. And you'll, you're like, it's that kind of like, find something you love doing. It'll never work a day in your life. And I'm like, I'm doing the wrong thing. Cause there's definitely days where I'm like, Oh man, I got to do this thing. Like even having a quote unquote dream job, explain your, your thought there, like that reframe of, okay, it's actually the reverse. Like it's going to be challenging. And that yeah. doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. The whole chapter on work um, or the way I frame it, the distraction of leisure, I, I think is mm-hmm. pretty, pretty countercultural in, in a world where, CNN says early retirement is the new American dream and retirement is, I don't know, low grade obsession in everybody's yeah. life from the moment they, they yeah. enter the workplace, right? Like, how do, I, how do I make enough that I can stop doing this uh, for the rest of my life? And when that's the view of work that we have, there's, there's no joy in that. But like, there's, mm-hmm. there can be no joy in work if the goal is to get out of it as soon as I possibly. Yeah, that's prison. We just described prison. Yeah, right. On my best behavior, I get paroled early from yeah. this thing. Yeah. Uh, instead, I, th- I think we, uh, we view work as meaningful. Dorothy Sayers, um, I reference a, an essay she wrote back around World War II um, in Great Britain called Why We Work. And she makes this brilliant case, like literally just changed my view of work where she said, the modern view of work is selfish. I go to work to make the paycheck that allows me to buy the thing or go on the vacation or get out of work as soon as I possibly can. And, and she said, um, there's, there's no long lasting joy when what we're doing is with selfish motives. And instead, we, we need to see work as selfless. Work is love. Like work is, the, work is me doing what I'm good at so that you can go do what you're good at. So all of society benefits and we all get to move forward. Some people mistake that to mean I'm telling everyone to quit the job they hate and go find a job that is just their passion project. And that's not what I'm saying. I, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I think we just reframe the work that we're doing, like find the the joy and the meaning in what you're doing. If you're a cashier, if you're a, a manager, if you're a CEO, if you're an architect, if you're a landscaper, if you're a dentist, like there are very few jobs in the world where you're not serving other people in a beneficial way. So, so start to see that. And then uh, work becomes a, a bit more meaningful, but like you even mentioned in uh, introducing this question, introducing this thought that that doesn't mean there's, there's no hard work in work. Roses still have thorns and um, we've had thorns and thistles since the, since the beginning of work. And, yeah. and so it's always been um, a little bit 
painful and uh, requires a, a little bit of effort. And um, there's there's no job that's perfect. But when you see it beyond, I just want the paycheck. You can see it as okay. This this pain, this discomfort, doing these things that I don't love doing, uh, serve a serve a, a greater good that um, makes me want to do them well. Well, and the idea I I sometimes say like if your plan is you're going to be miserable for six decades or until you're 65, but then you'll get a place in Florida and you won't be miserable. Like you've practiced misery for six and a half days. Like you're expecting an awful lot from a golf cart. Like that's not, I mean, they're awesome. Don't get me wrong, but just there's not going to be a switch that flips that now you go, okay, I was this one person and accepted this level of frustration and six decades. And then I counted the days off and then I finally got to, you know, go bass fishing. And now I'm completely different. Like you should be that person the whole time. Are you my age? How old are you, Joshua? 47. I'm 46. I'll be 47 this year. Man, yeah, look at that. Yeah, right? My age. So over there. I know. A lot of gray. You, I have way more gray than you do. Do you feel that sense of like, I just got a book the other day called From Strength to Strength. I don't know if you've read Brilliant. that one. Brilliant. Wow. Walter Brooks. Holy cow. And somebody said to me, well, it's about the second half of life and you're really not in it. And I was like, do you know a ton? I mean, that's the old joke. Like, do you know a ton of 92 year olds? But like, we are in the second half. What are the things that you've grown something, you've done something, you've written a book about what matters. As you look at the next five years of your life, 10 years of your life, what are the things that you're like, you know what? This matters. This other thing didn't matter. I don't know. I don't know. It's, I mean, honestly, funny that you had mentioned the book, um, that you would, you would ask the question. In, the, in Things That Matter, I, um, the book came from a question that uh, Charlie Gilkey asked me, uh, asked a group of people. He said, if you were to die today, what is the one thing you would most regret not accomplishing with your life? And uh, I immediately thought of this book and um, said, I would, I would regret um, not, get some, get, not getting some of these thoughts mm-hmm. on paper out in the world that, that could outlive me. And that was three years ago. And two months before the book came out, someone asked me what my five-year goals are. And I said, I, I don't have any. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like I just finished my my five-year yeah. goal to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to get this book out. And I don't know what comes next. The book came out in April. We're doing a, a book tour in July. Uh, I'm going to take off a couple weeks at the beginning of August before my kids uh, go back to school. And then I'm going to use this fall to, to try to figure out what I want to do next, what it looks like. I feel like I've been, I mean, a little bit of the Arthur Brooks book, you know, I mean, a little bit of running and, and building and had the energy and the drive. and. Now I I don't know what it is. I'm 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 still pretty passionate about stuff, but I I don't know. I don't know for sure what it's what it's going to be. I was a pastor before doing what I'm doing now and um I've always kind of thought maybe there was something back um what I used to be doing that I could bring into what I'm doing now, but I I don't know for sure. So And you're in Vermont? Do I have that right? I was in Vermont. I'm in okay. Phoenix now, yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in Massachusetts, so we it's a, like the ninth thing we share, other than black t-shirts and gray hair and starting blogs that turned into our <laughs> full-time career. That's a lot of things, by the way. That's more than most people. I'm also dealing with a little bit of a life, uh, just season change. My my daughter will be a junior. My son just went to college this year, and so like a couple of years from now. Wait, she's a, ri- she's a rising junior? She'll be a junior in high school next year yeah okay and your son is already in college yeah he just finished his freshman year so there's a little bit of uh kids not kids not around how does that play into what comes the milestones milestones Mm -hmm. is what we're talking about yeah 
I'm I'm just one year behind you. Mine is my oldest is going to college this fall, and my youngest will be is a rising junior. Oh, so you just went through the first uh, high school graduation? Yeah. So we're doing this right now. We're recording this in May, and May is busier than December. Like yeah. it's crazy. Like I have friends that don't have kids that are graduating. And they're like, "Hey, you want to hang out this weekend?" I'm like, "I'll be at 19 graduation parties." So no, I don't. I'll be at a band banquet and a track. My daughter also runs track, so we'll file that one in the other John and Joshua mm -hmm. um, category. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned not having five-year goals. What are your what's your approach to goals? You, like, so th it's the fall. You like, are you a guy that likes to sit down and you're like, you know what? I come up with like, here's the things I'd like to accomplish <clears throat> in 2022 or 2023. Yeah. Is it like, how do you approach goals? Or there's a lot of people like, I don't like goals. I think goals are dumb. But then they tell me I like intentions. I'm like, well, that's a synonym for goal, but whatever helps you sleep at night. By all means. Uh, John, I, man, man, so pe people are so good at five-year goals and 10-year goals. And I so wish I thought in that way and I wish I could do mm -hmm. it, but I, I just can't. John, you know what I am? I'm a project type goal setter. Is there a phrase for that? There should be. We, we could do a book together. Like I knew three years ago that I... I wanted to write this book. And yeah. so that has been the goal. Um, uh, I knew I wanted to promote minimalism. I didn't have a specific way yeah. that I was going to do it. I, I knew for that year and a half, three and a half years that I was going to be doing this full time. So that was the goal. How am I going to get the income mm -hmm. to that point? The, the first two books, we built an app and started a magazine. And it feels like I get a good idea that I'm passionate mm -hmm. about. Uh, and then that becomes the, the goal. Um, and so that's where I am today. Right. Like, I, I, and, but I've never been this spot. Like even when the last books, the last two were finishing, like I, I knew what the next thing was and I knew what the next yeah. thing was. And, um, uh, right now I'm, I'm not sure what it is. So are you, are you have something? I'm yeah. Getting, oh yeah. I don't know oh, what it is quite yet. Yeah, totally. Are you out of contract? Are you going back into contract? Are you going to put a proposal together? Like, cause my, I, when I turn in my second book in August, I'm technically out of contract. Like, I love this publisher. Um, so I'd love to do more books with them. But, you know, that that's, there's always contracts and you put together proposals. Is that where you are right now? Is you're going to put together another proposal? Uh, I, I don't have another book yet yeah. that I, uh, I want to write. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm out of contract would yeah. be the phrasing. I, the, the first book, we just pitched one book um, and they made an offer that was pretty impressive. And then they said, how about two books? I said, okay, I can write two. So yeah. I did the two. Didn't think I would write anymore. Thought I would be done. Why did you think you'd be done? Because uh, it's real. I because I it's hard for me. Yeah, yeah. It's really. And hard. you and you love the blog, like you. Yeah, I liked what I was doing. I didn't have the idea. I didn't have the hey. This is what the next book is yeah. going to be. Things that matter came up. Um, two years probably. I think after the Minimalist Home came out is when the idea for this book. Maybe one year later is when this idea came up. And so I don't. I don't have another book in mind. And um, if this is the last one, then. I'd be pretty content with it being the last one. Probably in a year and a half, I have another idea of one that yeah. I'm passionate about. And yeah, there's no way this is the last book, dude. I mean, you know, like I'll I'll do that fantasy with you, you know. if you'd like to. But like, there's no way that you're 47. There's no like, you know what, man? Took a couple good swings at the old ball. Time to hang up the cleats <laughs> and just let this young, this Gen Y generation write all the books now. Like it's difficult, and I. I, I, I've got to be passionate about yeah. what you can tell when the author to isn't too, by like, the way, like, you know, when the author is like, I had to write this book yeah. 
it's like Prince getting an album out because he had a deal, and you're like, this wasn't as yeah. good as Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect analogy, perfect. Wow. Analogy. A little bit of I always say if you. Uh, either you have to um, be really passionate about a problem or know how to solve a problem. But when you're not passionate and you don't know how to solve it, then good luck <laughs> ever solving it. And so I would never go into a book where I wasn't incredibly passionate about the topic because I know the the writing part is just real difficult for me. Yeah. But if I'm passionate about it, then I'm like, okay, I can I can sit down and figure this out because I'm really want to yeah it, the passion for you makes me relentless like if i if it's not something i'm passionate about i get to feel like a phony for six months and i don't enjoy it where mm -hmm. like if it's something i'm like oh my gosh i i figured this out in my own life i'm gonna see if other people need this too oh wow they need it too how do i really lean into it that's when i'll go i'll throw you know years against that like there's a reason i've never wrote a book on how to grow a social media audience like mm -hmm. i'm not pa like i love that and i've benefited from that and i enjoy parts of that it's not what I'm passionate about. And there's other people that are so much better at writing about that. And mm. that is their passion. So I, I completely understand that. I've only got uh, three more questions. What's the advice you haven't taken? So people come up to you and say, hey, you got to scale. Hey, if you did, you know, you got to be your YouTube channel. You should be making YouTube videos every day. Like, like what's the advice from kind of outside your ecosystem that you haven't taken? Uh, I've never bought into, uh, I need to be everywhere. Uh, I need to be on all the social media platforms, uh, never taken into that advice. And honestly, I've, to the best of my ability, uh, I've never made a business decision, uh, based on how much money, uh, it would bring in. And so no ads on the YouTube channel, no mm -hmm. ads on the website, no sponsored videos, no, none of that. And there's plenty of money I could be making by doing some pretty, pretty simple things, but that's just not, it's what not I'm your thing. Doing. Not your thing. Uh, I, I, someone, uh, Leo Babauta once said, uh, advertising is selling your reader's attention. And, uh, I'm like, that is exactly what advertising is and I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it. So I like to hear your approach to that. Second question, what's on your Mount Rushmore of best nonfiction books that you, that you love that if somebody said, Hey, I need four recommendations, wh who would you put up there? Uh, how to win friends and influence people. Ah, old school. The greatest salesman in the world. Augmandino. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah. yeah. It's good. I didn't do it. I read it. The, there's a lot of doing <laughs> in that book. It's thin, but there's a lot of doing. I don't want to be, I don't want to lie to you. I didn't do all of it. Like, so I probably benefited from very little of it, but yes, I'm familiar with that. I book. gave it to someone. I think at one point in the book, he says to like read every chapter once a day for 30 days. And, yeah, I didn't do that and I, part. And I, okay? I, gave, I gave it to, I gave Did you it do to that? every member of my team. No, I'm like, am I, I'm not really supposed to do this. Am I? I gave it to every member of the team and I asked one of them uh, a couple months later if they read it and she's, and she, I shouldn't have said she even, but um, she's like, well, how could I have? Because I'm still doing the, like. <laughs> oh, I'm still reading chapter <laughs> two 30 days in a row. Um, a I didn't mean to actually do that. Is this your team? Yeah. How many people are on your team? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six plus me. And they're all geared around the products you create, the ideas you create. Yeah. One person who does the finance, one person who runs, um, yeah, I have a couple different websites that I do and the YouTube channel yeah. and um, just all the customer support that, that goes That's with awesome, doing dude. anything online. 
So yeah, that's the team over here. Uh, that was just two books. Uh, I, yeah. um, Money Possessions in Eternity is a, a super religious book, but really, really kind of changed my view of money and possessions in a, in a yeah. positive way. So about those three. That's, that sounds great. The other way I sometimes ask the question is, what's the book you've given away more than any other book other than your own? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the greatest salesman in the world is the one that I've given away. Yeah. Although, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People is probably the one that I've recommended yeah. the most. Just mind-blowing, John. Honestly, the first time I read it, I- I'm like, how to win friends and influence people? Like, what kind of sorcery is yeah, yeah, kind of going to be witchcraft? a witchcraft? Like, I don't want to yeah. learn how to manipulate people. And yeah. then it's all like, ask good questions and be yeah. interested in people and be kind yeah. to people. And I'm like, oh, this is... This is different than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, That's so funny. Good. Everyone should read it. Last question. This one's an easy one. Where can people find out more about you, about the book? Like, give us all the stuff. Becomingminimalist.com is a uh, home base for me and um, involved in uh, other places and other spaces, but everything seems to run through that as my uh, home base. Perfect answer. And the book's out. Things that matter. Yep. You, you can get that anywhere. Books are sold. Uh, audio. Are, are you the, do you read the audio? I read the audio. Do nice. you read yours? You read yours, yeah, right? You got to do it. You got like guys like us, you have to, cause it's personal. If you had some British actor yeah. telling the story about making your daughter cry, I'd be like, what is this guy talking about? Do you no, like I'm, it? Exhausting. Do you like it? Do you love I it? I find it so hard. I don't like, I don't walk out like her. Like, no, it's very challenging to read. And then you, you left yourself booby traps with really difficult words or like you're quoting some Swedish study mm-hmm. and you're like, there's no way I'm getting this, this city's name right. And or you like, put a diagram in your book and I'm like, how am I going to explain? Yeah. And then for the rest this? of time, you'll get emails or DMs that say, Hey, is there an online version of this diagram on page 42? Exactly. And you're yep, like, yep. Oh, let me try to figure out a link. Let me get well, the team to build a page. When I, uh, when I did my first book uh, and started recording the audio, I did the first page and the, the sound guy, the producer was like, okay, stop. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, pretend you're in a room speaking to 500 people. I'm like, okay, I can do that. He said, because if you just read the book, it's going to be pretty boring. But if you... Yeah read it like you're speaking to a room full of people, then uh, it, you'll just read it differently. It'll be more entertaining. Literally That's changed funny. everything for me. So I had the opposite problem. I had to re-record an entire audiobook because I was apparently shouting to a room full of 10,000 people. Oh. And the audio engineer was like, they're already with you in their car. They've already made a decision. They're trying to trust you. Yeah. And you were shouting at them. Awesome. And, and yeah. so I had to redo. I wish it was one page. Like me and this guy who... Looking back on it, he knew nothing about recording audiobooks. We turned it in, and the producer was like, "This is garbage," and so I had to redo the entire oh, thing. And man. I was like, "That was a good lesson to learn. I, I could have learned that lesson faster." That How would about be that? that would be brutal. That'd be brutal. I, I I was doing a, a a live YouTube event, and um, my producer Gabriella, I, I'm like, "I'll have my phone up. If you notice anything, just text me. Like, if I'm doing anything, just yeah. tell me." And she only texted me one thing. Uh, she said. Getting a bit shouty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's mine. If, like, if I'm too if excited, popped up. I'm like, oh, yeah. You probably then immediately like melatonin did. Yeah, We're like, yeah. let's be real. It was like chill, Joshua. Like jazz, Joshua came out and was yeah, like, yeah. no yeah. need to shout at any of y'all. So, well, this has been a blast, dude. I'm so glad to finally make your acquaintance. Um, I'm sure we'll be at an event together at some point down the road. Now that events are starting to happen, uh, we'll both probably be wearing black t-shirts. I'm in a, nobody can see this. I'm in a black polo because I had a client zoom today and I was like, 
this is the fans. This is like when Batman is like brings extra stuff. And I was like, this collar will make them go, oh, okay. I like where this guy's going. Let's bring him in. Let's bring him in. Sleeves sleeves aren't sealing the deal, but the collar. I know. know. Well, it's not, I'm not doing full button down in my office. I'm not going to pretend I dress up like every day with like belts and stuff. Yeah. Or belt. I've never worn multiple belts. Um, that would be weird. Thanks for having me on, John. Appreciate it. You do yeah, this is a blast, man. dude. We'll, man, you uh, do a good job. We'll get it out everywhere. And uh, again, the name of the book, one last time, Things That Matter, Joshua Becker. Thanks for joining me today, buddy. Thank you so much for listening to my interview today with Joshua Becker. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thanks for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging. Here's a recent one from Johan. Um, I believe Johan is maybe from Norway. Is how I'm going to take that. Maybe, probably Norway. So this podcast, international. Here's what the review was. This is the title. It's good. That's the whole title. This is the entire review. This is a podcast. It is good. To say much more would be unnecessary. So listen to it yourself. I, I love that. I love a brief. That was to the point. Crush that, Johan. So thank you, Johan, and everyone else who writes a review. I really, really, really appreciate those. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. And please write a review. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.